Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. I'm not sure if it crosses anyone's mind during the day about uh, coming here in the context of what's happening in Japan and in Libya and so many places in the world where... um, uh, there is no safety, and um, um, I hope sometimes when we come and practice here that we also uh, really make use of the time, because it's easy to kind of. I did this for a few years. You, you just kind of sit and you space out and you just uh, plan or obsess about enemies or uh, you know whatever you obsess about. Um, but really, when you come here, our time is so precious, and maybe in a few years we, we won't be able to practice here like this, and we'll need uh, the skills that uh, so many people need in crisis, which is being able to respond creatively, having equanimity, um, and... Um, um, being able to serve. So, um, there was a poll in the Globe and Mail today, maybe some of you saw it, where they asked Canadians what is the most important uh, values to you in a government. And uh, number one was knowledge. And the last one was uh, compassion. Fifty-one percent was knowledge. Thirty-two percent, I think, was decisiveness. And right at the bottom, it was like eight percent or something, was uh, compassion. And um, beside it, there was another poll that they ran comparing Americans and Canadians. Did it, did anybody see this? Yeah. And so the first question they asked is, "Do you believe that God created humans?" in the last 10,000 years. And the, the Canadian statistic was really, really low, but the American statistic was 41% <laughs> that God created humans within the last 10,000 years. It was really fascinating. You know, to, I would actually like to spend the whole evening exploring this, but we're not going to. Uh, but maybe we will 
uh, implicitly. So uh, we've been studying together the Lotus Sutra. And um, the Lotus Sutra is a very important Mahayana text. And uh, we're in the fourth or fifth week of it now. And we're only in the third chapter, second chapter. And um, as, a, as, a, as a kind of capsule summary, um, when the Buddha dies, um, the Sangha um, builds uh, several stupas, which are like shrines. And people gather around the shrines. And obviously, different uh, parts of the community gather around different shrines, just like here. If there was a stupa in Parkdale and a stupa in Rosedale and a stupa in Yorkdale, then there would be kind of different socioeconomic groups gathering around those, those shrines. And um, one of the, the, the largest uh, group, which was called the Maha Sangha, the majority of the Sangha, which is then where we get the term Mahayana, um, they, uh, within about a hundred years of the Buddha's death, um, after several meetings, uh, split away from the elders. And most of the people who form the Mahasanga, some scholars suggest, were non-monastics. So most of the, 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 the inception of Mahayana Buddhism is a kind of thrust coming from a community of non-monastic practitioners who were um, uh, striking out in a way, because they felt that the core teachings of the Buddha and the way the Sangha was uh, growing was becoming just too rigid with too many rules and uh, uh, too many lists. And what they were posing to that group was a question that we've been exploring for the last few weeks, which is, where's the love? Right? Where is the love? In your following the rules to transcend and get out of this circle of birth and death and habit, where's the joy? You know, where, where's the creativity? And um, so they, they started developing their own texts. And what was happening was, um, uh, over time, that, those, th- that group spread down to Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, then over to China... And when they got to China, Buddhism was already around for 600 years. The Dharma was already around for 600 years in India. So the text started arriving in China, and the Chinese found this incredible way of synthesizing and organizing these texts. And um, out of that comes a very rich and imaginative style of talking about practice. And we've explored sort of textually how this is different than Theravada Buddhism, but also um, the the main difference, which is what we're going to focus on tonight, is this idea of uh, um, moving from an idea of Buddhahood, that your goal is to become a Buddha, to this notion of the Bodhisattva. And I think we, we talked about this last week also. So a bodhisattva is someone who puts off his or her own enlightenment to serve others. 
in a way, I want to ask if we could do a poll. I would want to know what percentage of you are striving for your own transcendence, and how many of you are using your life as a tool of service to help others wake up. And not just that, but in Mahayana perspective, it's not just that you're helping others wake up, it's that you can only wake up with others. You can only wake up with others. All the way until the last butterfly, the last blade of grass, is awake. And um, the other thing that happened uh, in the early schools is that uh, a lot of the community saw that the Sangha of Arhats, who are perfected Buddhas, um, were not as perfect as they thought. And I think we touched on this last week also, the way we have this idea of people who are fully awake. You know, maybe some of us have met people who the community determines are fully enlightened beings. This is the, what's going on with the Dalai Lama this week. The, the Dalai Lama this week has retired from uh, his political office. So you're not really allowed to do that as a Dalai Lama. You're supposed to continue leading uh, socially, politically, spiritually until you die, and then within a few centuries a new Dalai Lama is found. And the Dalai Lama is saying, no, I'm retiring and I'm appointing someone else to take over the politics because if we just leave it to reincarnation, there won't be a Tibet left. <laughs> well, you're not really supposed to change the rules, you know. He's the 14th <laughs> Dalai Lama. So anyways, he's changing the rules. And, um, but maybe there weren't any rules. And maybe the Dalai Lama is giving a skillful teaching here that actually those rules are exactly what shuts down a Sangha rather than makes it more creative. And so last week uh, we also touched on this notion of Upaya, which I got completely obsessed with yesterday and ended up at Robart's Library. For those of you that don't know, Robart's Library has this whole Sanskrit collection that like when you are in that section, it feels like no one's been there in 30 years. The books are all perfectly aligned, covered in dust. And um, you can look up all these texts, and, and, and they have Sanskrit, English transliterations. It's incredible, because once U of T had a really good Buddhist um, studies program, which it doesn't anymore. And um, did I just say that? Anyways, once it had a really thriving Buddhist uh, studies program. Anyways, um, so I was really interested in this word upaya, because this term upaya comes up in the second chapter of the Lotus Sutra. So just to get you up to speed, um, there's an introduction to the Lotus Sutra where the Buddha is meditating, he's in samadhi, and as he's entering samadhi, the world, uh, there's a massive earthquake. And then the skies open up and it starts raining uh, flowers which apparently cool people down and then out of the tuft of silver hair between his eyebrows a beam of light shoots out and lights up 18,000 worlds and 
uh, our interpretation of that, or my interpretation of that, was this is like ancient social media. Now, this is how the Buddha let everybody know he was about to teach the Lotus Sutra. And then two of his uh, disciples, Manjushri and Maitreya, uh, they go on to talk and let the reader know that actually this has been uh, preached already for 80,000 kalpas. So the Lotus Sutra stretches out space through this notion of 18,000 worlds, which means that the teachings of the Buddha are everywhere. The teachings of awakening are not limited to this historical figure, the Buddha. Kind of like, you know, in, in, you know, in the last century, if you were analyzed by Freud, then you were definitely enlightened. You know, if you came in contact with the Buddha, you were definitely awakened. Instead, there's a sense that you, you are all Buddha. Every single person in this room is a Buddha. But you know you're trying to become perfect like a Buddha, and in doing so, you forget about others. And you can hear here, this is a critique of religion in here also, of transcendent forms of religion. So then uh, the Buddha finally is convinced by Shariputra to teach. And what he says is, there's many different ways to teach. There are different styles of teaching. There are parables, there are similes, uh, there are metaphors, there's logic. And all these different ways of teaching are called upaya, skillful means. So it turns out that even though scholars say the word upaya first shows up in the Lotus Sutra, actually I found it in the Pali Canon in three places yesterday. Uh, the first place, and the most important, I think, is in one of the teachings of the Buddha, where he says that his teachings are like a boat that can cross a river. And that when you cross the river, you don't need the boat anymore. And he makes a joke to one of his students that if you crossed a river in this boat, would you hoist it on your back and then start walking around? Of course you wouldn't. Um, the other thing is that the boat is made up of uh, various things found on the shore. So whatever is found, you cobble it together, you build a boat, and then you use that vehicle to cross the river. And the purpose of the vehicle is for crossing. You don't hold on to the vehicle, you let it go and let someone else use it. And we know this, I think, even in our meditation practice, right? When you start following your breathing, inhaling and exhaling, you follow your breath until you come to a place where there's stability. And then you open up to see what else is there. Feelings, thoughts, eventually all phenomenon. You don't keep holding on to the breath forever and ever. Sometimes you just use the breath as a vehicle to, to kind of get calm. And then you, you just let the vehicle drop. And then when you need it again, you pick it up again. So this is the first place that we find this teaching of upaya, skillful means, that it's skillful to see the teachings not as something to cling to. You don't argue over them, you don't fight over them. You don't kill somebody over the teachings. The teachings are just skillful means. Now in the Lotus Sutra, this gets taken a step further. 
the Buddha is saying, well, all those teachings, Shariputra, he's speaking to Shariputra, all those teachings I taught you, uh, they're all lesser teachings. And Shariputra is like really upset about this. You say, well, what do you mean? I mean, I've been striving to become like you. And he's saying, well, not lesser than in the sense that you've done something wrong, but lesser in the sense that that was a kind of linear way of practicing that was a skillful means for you at that time. So the most skillful thing one can do is cobble together the pieces of your culture, the pieces of your life that uh, work for you so that you can have a vehicle. And the skillfulness of a teacher is to be able to meet the student where the student is and use whatever's going on in their life to be able to create a kind of support for them. And um, all of us, to be able to serve, we need to look at a situation and understand the situation also from its own side, which is next to impossible. But that's what we do in order to serve. Otherwise, you get top-down service. Does this make sense? Yeah. I haven't even looked at my notes yet. <clears throat> also, upaya was a rhetorical device used to reform Buddhism. And this is a pretty sophisticated way of reforming Buddhism. Is that you then say... Well, all the teachings that have come before, this is 406. So Kumara Jiva's translation from Sanskrit to Chinese of the Lotus Sutra is in 406 um, CE. So now everybody gets the Lotus Sutra, they're in China, and, and the teaching is, well, well, everything that came before, that was just like to get you in the door. That was just like to get you on the path. But actually now, I'll tell you what it's really like. And this is a kind of interesting device on the part of the authors of the Lotus Sutra to actually reform Buddhism, this, to, to change to this focus of serving other beings. And it's a pretty good device, right? It's saying, like, we just need a lot of different ways of teaching. And it's not that they're lesser than, it's that they're a smaller vehicle Literally, they can only carry one person. This, the Lotus Sutra, is the Mahayana. Yana is a vehicle. It's the bigger vehicle to carry a lot of people. And then we come across this comment, which is that he then says to Shariputra, um, <clears throat> I will say no more, Shariputra. Why? Because what I've said is the rarest and most difficult to understand teaching or dharma. The true dharma, the true nature of how your life happens, can only be known between a Buddha and a Buddha. The only way to really see the nature of a situation and the nature of your life is between a Buddha and a Buddha. 
So there's two levels to this. One is, you can't see it alone. Two people have to see it. Two beings. And we all know this about different situations. You know, there's a wonderful Japanese play, the name I'm forgetting now, where there's a... I saw it, I think there's like 12 acts. And there's a murder. Rashomon. What's it called? I think it's Rashomon. Yeah, Rashomon. And there's a murder... And then you see the murder from the perspective of the police officer. And then, you, and then the scene, you know, the curtains come, curtains open, see the same scene from the perspective of the victim. Curtains close, curtains open, see the same, so 12 times. You get a different perspective, and then it ends. <laughs> and there's this sense at the end that you have no idea what, what happened. Actually, and it, it's written in a way where your heart opens to each character. To also each a character. Movie. A great movie. Yeah. 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 I haven't seen the film. I'll put it on my list. Yeah. And um, secondly, we're so busy being people, aren't we? Like, we're all busy, like, being people. And, it, and that means that there's people that are for us and people that are against us, and we've got to kind of move them around, and they're heavy and awkward, and we need to push some people out of our way. We need to run over groups of people so that we can, you know, really make it, make it happen our way, you know. Today I was uh, going through blogs about uh, Japan, trying to pick out, uh, like, healing stories in people's blogs uh, for something I'm writing. And there's this one beautiful blog where the woman who's blogging describes uh, going to the uh, nuclear plant uh, that we're all reading about and um, uh, sits down by a worker who's left and beside him is a high school student who's just shown up to see what he can do. A young young student. And... Um, the worker turns to the student and says, I'm sorry. He's, el- he's an elderly, elderly man, and he says, I'm sorry, as if he's like apologizing for his whole generation. And the student says, uh, it's okay, uh, we'll fix this. And then the worker apologizes again that he has to fix this. And then the woman who's writing the blog says, what happens next is that the high school student starts rubbing uh, uh, the back of this elderly man. It's a beautiful moment, really. And um, that's, a, that's the bodhisattva vow right there. Um, but we're so busy being people that we can't rub someone's back. Uh, we're just trying to, like, I need power. I need more power. I'm guilty about my power. I need less power. Oh, then I need more power. And in all of this, it's like we're, we're so busy being people that we've forgotten how two Buddhas can relate. So, um, the medieval philosopher and teacher uh, Dogen, who most of you know is kind of an obsession around here, Uh, He loved this phrase, that the Dharma can only be realized by a Buddha and a Buddha. And in the Shobo Genzo, he wrote a fascicle called Only a Buddha and a Buddha. 
where he writes a commentary on this line of the Lotus Sutra. And so what I wanted to do tonight, and I want to do this over the next couple of weeks, is you know, sort of end my talking there for now. And maybe we can read what Dogen says about this and maybe talk about it together. Because I think what he says, and we're not going to go through the whole thing, we'll just look at a few sentences. What he says here is just so fascinating. So if you don't have one, can you share with, with somebody? Maybe just see around you if there's someone who doesn't have. This, this can be your moment of service for the day. Because only a Buddha and a Buddha can read this. So uh, the way that uh, you should also know that the way that um, Dogen uses the term Dharma, it just means reality. Like, what's here now? Um, so Buddha Dharma is like the teachings of the Buddha interpreted as the teachings of this. So Dogen says, the Buddha Dharma, or this, cannot be known by a person. For this reason, since olden times, no ordinary person has realized this. No practitioner of the lesser vehicles has mastered the Buddha Dharma because it is realized by Buddhas alone, it's said only a Buddha and a Buddha can completely master it. When you realize Buddha Dharma, so this is like what he's saying is, when you wake up, you do not think, ah, oh, this is realization just as I expected. Even if you think so, Realization always differs from your expectation. Realization is not like your conception of it. You know, we could say the same thing about service. You see this a lot working with clinicians. Clinicians burn out. They really burn out because a lot of times clinicians are just trying to help and fix. You know, and and one of the ways that uh, I've worked with clinicians is to get out of this mentality of helping and fixing, and instead think about service. Thinking about your work more horizontally as service, and in a way, this is becoming a Buddha and allowing the other person to be a Buddha, rather than this kind of top-down view of like fixing people or fixing situations, especially for those of us that are good at fixing things. You know, it's a really good recipe for burnout. And at the same time, you can't get work done if you can't see the other side also as a Buddha. If you can't understand their needs and all the complexity that gave rise to their position. Any negotiator knows this. And you still have to arrive at a position. So you can't just say, oh, it's positionless, man. It's just love. It's just love. Okay, so um, this is about half of what Dogen says about um, this line. A Buddha, only a Buddha and a Buddha.
So I think a nice thing to do is maybe we'll just make a, a, some groups and, and go through this and, and find out what is Dogen saying here about the Lotus Sutra. That to, to wake up can't be related to your conceptions of waking up. Likewise, if you are a bodhisattva and you are really serving others, you can't serve others through your conception of others, through your conception of service, through your conception of being a person. Otherwise, what you're fixing is over there. It's like the current critique of environmentalism as being, you know, just protecting parks. You know, we have to get right down to the level of the bird. Right down to the level of the fish. How do you do this? This is what Dogen's trying to urge you to do. Saying awakening, it, it can't, it's not conceptual. You have to get right down to the level of your life. So, how about groups of five? Does that sound like a good, good number? You're like, I don't want to talk to anyone. I just to, <laughs> you just tell me what to do. <laughs> tell me how to serve. Okay, so groups of five, and just, just go through this sentence by sentence, and just, just see what comes up for you. There's no right or wrong here.